Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. There is trouble in the magic kingdom of advanced computation. The late Jeffrey Epstein led us to it. This hour, another man's critical overview of the kingdom and its landscape. Silicon is its valley, its industrial zone. The Media Lab at MIT has been its ivory tower of ideas on the East Coast. Wired is the magazine of the realm. TED Talks are its showcase. It's a kingdom of masterful men, names like Bezos, Zuckerberg, Gates, and Kurzweil. And it has its own code of intelligence called AI, A for artificial. It has its high priests like Nicholas Negroponte, founder of the Media Lab in 1985 and of Wired Magazine in 1993. So the linkages are tight and the loyalty is firm to some central ideas above all that technology is good for everybody. If it can't fix a problem, it can transform it, even ultimate challenges like life and death. This kingdom of computation has had its rogue financiers, like the late Jeffrey Epstein, and it's had dissenters, too. Our guest this hour is eminent among those critical insiders, the writer-historian Evgeny Morozov. He was born in the Soviet Union, Ph.D. at Harvard, ever a doubter and always brash about it. His starting point in conversation with us, this week from a tiny town in Calabria, Italy, is that there is a coherent big idea in this cyber-utopia, but it's not a good idea. To Evgeny Morozov... A digital future looks like a bad dream and or a commercial gimmick. As of now, in 2019, I'm actually not at all sure that to describe it as utopia in an honest intellectual way is correct. I think that there is definitely a discussion and there is clearly a set of ideas which try to present technology as something that stands outside of history, as something that has a progressive teleology and a progressive direction, and the more technology, the better. And it's a story and a narrative which, by its definition, almost excludes any discussions of power, capital, market, capitalism, Cold War, the Defense Department, and whatnot. So that's a story that I think is not new, and many people have heard it. Uh, The question I think that we have to start posing as soon as we can is to what extent the actors themselves believe that story or whether they actually made it up for external consumption while they, in a very cynical manner, acted the way they wanted and uh, they just wanted to use that story as some kind of a publicity shield to make mm. as much money as they could, to get as many contracts as they could with foundations or the Defense Department or anyone else uh, in that circle. And they basically, the story itself is uh, just there to conceal other activities that are going on. And I think that mm. most of the cyber utopian critique, right, most of the people, including myself, who have been attacking this way of framing technology, which strips it of politics and strips it of history, we took it for granted that the actors themselves believed the narrative they were spinning. Now in 2019, I'm not sure anymore. The more we start digging into 
bastions of this ideology, like uh, MIT Media Lab or TED Talks or these billionaire dinners which were happening on the edges of TED Talks, which were intimately tied to the publishing industry and a literary agent by the name of John Brockman. The more you dig into this world, the more you realize just how cynical Mm. power, sex and money oriented they were. And the stories that they produce clearly served a certain function. It might have been some kind of a whitewashing function for their side businesses, or it might just have been a way to distract the public from understanding how power was being concentrated in their hands. I don't know why it happened, but at this point, I think we have to be very careful because the utopia might not have been believed by the people who built it. I'd like you to go back to the ideas themselves. I mean, the digital utopia has taken some heavy hits, and Jeffrey Epstein's just the latest and the seemiest. But what was the idea that they were pushing? Well, again, it depends on which institution you look at. I think the uh, organizing idea and the organizing narrative in the story is, of course, this belief that technology can make life easier, regardless of who provides it. So whether it's a big company or whether it's the Defense Department or whether it's a university getting money from a foundation does not really matter because technology has this uh, logic behind it and the more technology, the better. It was this idea that by surrounding yourself with products, technological gadgetry of various kinds, apps, you know, more recently, software in general, you can emancipate yourself from uh, oppressive institutions, from government, from bureaucracy, from anything that imposes friction and constraints on you, and you would be able to essentially become far more powerful if only you chose the right technology. And that explains to you, for example, why an institution like the whole Earth Review and whole Earth Catalog, started by uh, Stuart Brand, one of the key figures in this network, uh, how it became so powerful, because ultimately it was a perfect blend of, on the one hand, this technological utopianism and this idea of consumption as liberation, that by consuming uh, your way intelligently through these latest technologies, you would be able to find uh, solutions uh, to political problems that previously took a lot of friction, collaboration with people, politics, uh, and so forth. And I think, of course, it's very hard to tie all of these institutions and thinkers together, and many of them disagree on even some basic political issues. Some of them have a much more communitarian bent, and they powerfully believed in the idea of virtual community, for example, right? And they really thought that you will have this new generation of netizens, and that the net was some kind of a better version of, uh, you know, a traditional American small town hall meeting, right, where we would all be able to debate and engage in passionate discussions. Others saw it very differently, and they focused much more on the individualistic, laissez-faire kind of uh, emancipation so that people would be able to retreat into their own bubbles and live there untouched, a very libertarian standing. So I don't want to present this group of people as coherent, but I think they did get united around this idea of technology as, uh, first of all, as as an emancipatory force, perhaps uh, cleaner and less messy than politics. And uh, they powerfully believed that, you know, markets, companies, the military, whoever would foot the bill would essentially provide it. And that the secondary effects and the costs 
of providing this liberation by technology uh, did not matter. Evgeny, remind people of the instances of the way this worked. I mean, artificial intelligence would do a lot of our work for us. Manipulation of plants would produce better, better tasting food, for example. Or the human being would be redefined as a kind of computational process. And it would work better. If technology couldn't fix something, it would transform it. I mean, specifically, how? Sure. Well, I, again, depends on the institution by institution. If you look even at something I've already mentioned, like the Hollers catalog, I mean, many of the technologies mentioned there were very old tech. It was not high tech of any kind. It was different stoves, you know, to, to, to cook in a more environmentally friendly manner. So I don't want to present it only as cutting edge technology that was built or is being built at the media lab. But I think uh, a lot of this revolved around the idea of personalization and adaptation. So the, the idea of technologies that would be able to somehow provide to us an experience that was custom made, right, that was uh, right just for us and would liberate us from this oppressive dogma of uh, mass production, right, of objects that are all alike and that have no personality in them. I think it's actually at the core, for example, of many of the projects that came out of the Media Lab at MIT, right, which is the hotbed of this kind of ideology. So the idea that you... Sure. Well, the idea has always been from the very first projects that Nicholas Negroponte carried on at the Media Lab, the idea has always been that you would be able to build technologies that are very basic, whether they are chairs or tables or you know anything of that kind, uh, that would adapt to you as the user. And instead of provoking you or challenging you, they would become what today we would call smart. Right, this idea that technology would be plastic and would be completely flexible and it will follow all of your dreams, demands, and anxieties without even having to ask you for explicit instructions. And if you go and read some of the even more recent books that you know sell, they all talk about still about this idea that now it will be delivered to us not by sensors or algorithms, it will be delivered by data. So we will study everything about you and we would be able to, of course, provide you a custom experience that you will completely love because it already builds on your existing aspirations and desires. And you can clearly see why so many uh, neoclassical economists, but also, uh, for example, uh, venture capitalists and entrepreneurs love this because they think about the smart technologies as ultimately removing friction, which currently impedes new markets, right? So it explains why so much money flows into such institutions, because they did find a way to monetize all this data that's floating around and to essentially, you know, build smart products, which at this point uh, go far beyond everyday objects. We're talking about smart cities, right? We're talking about uh, everything turning smart, smart nations even, right? And But the idea is the same, that by leveraging and collecting and analyzing all this data, you would be able to produce some kind of a unique experience that you would not be able to turn down. And this is, of course, what prompts now so many people to criticize the almost behaviorist aspects of social networking where we are programmed to, uh, you know, click and like certain things. So this initial 
impulse has almost gone in the opposite direction. That the idea that we would be able to emancipate people and put them in the driving seat and have the world adapt to them uh, has been turned on Mm. its head. That essentially the markets that have sprung up around all these users uh, now essentially determine what is the most profitable uh, path of our future development as individuals. And they find ways to condition us to stay on that path and keep buying and keep clicking and keep generating revenue for the companies that manage to hijack our attention. That is the very opposite dystopia of the initial user as king utopia that these companies and their ideologists uh, presented. Evgeny Morozov is our tour guide this hour in a digital dystopia. Coming up, transhumanism in the mix, or is it contrahumanism? This is Open Source. In this kingdom of computation, we're calling it, and even in Jeffrey Epstein's strange network of contacts, there is a transhuman cluster that stands out. Epstein himself had plans to seed a strain of humanity with his own DNA at his resort in New Mexico. And he shared his dreams with scientific luminaries that he cultivated, among them our friend George Church at the Harvard Medical School and others who are aiming to tweak the human genome either to cure disease or someday to build a better human being. To Yevgeny Morozov, when he was finishing his PhD at Harvard, those transhumanists seem to be bent for reasons obscure even to themselves on exceeding or escaping their core human condition. I think that there has always been this very powerful uh, desire and impulse among uh, many of the technologists to uh, transcend what they think as shameful and disappointing constraints of flesh and human experience. The idea that the world can be imagined as computable and uh, thus manipulable, I don't even know what's the right word in English, easy to manipulate, uh, that gave them uh, this notion that somehow they can be like gods, right? And that's actually one of the original slogans of the 1960s counterculture uh, around Stuart Brand. It was that we can precisely act like gods, even though we are not ones, because technology allows us to do that. So the idea of transhumanism, I think, and everything related to it, including, by the way, all this hot buzzwords of 1990s, like virtual life or artificial life, uh, it appealed to this mindset of uh, transcending the limitations of the body on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, not wanting to die, right? Basically, I think what has happened is that many of the ideas that were circulating in this culture from 1970s uh, onwards, they have given this crowd the impression that they can take control of the path of their own lives and uh, they can actually figure a solution to the problems that have damned humanity for, for a very long time. From that perspective, I think many of them were more than happy to experiment with science that we would consider a little bit on the fringe, if not maybe even more than a little bit, uh, and to fund the research into essentially perpetuating uh, themselves. And again, you have to understand that many of them 
coming out of this academic background where they are celebrated as leaders in their field, as, you know, uh, godlike creatures, they might even believe what people tell them. And, uh, you know, these people have huge egos. They are rarely challenged because they have accumulated vast amounts of power and they manage to raise a lot of money, uh, if not from traditional foundations, uh, then at least from entrepreneurs and funders like uh, Epstein, for example. And when you manage to raise so much money and people tell you that you are next in line for the Nobel Prize, I mean, it's natural to find some solace and to find some consolation in initiatives like transhumanism. Mm. You can find a lot of very real connections. So somebody like Ray Kurzweil, right, who came up with the idea of the singularity, yes. he, of course, studied under Minsky at MIT, and he comes out of that experience and that community. And, you know, of course, I don't want to reduce his individual experience of somebody with a very, let's say, eccentric set of mind and turn that eccentricity into some kind of a common shared feature of everybody at MIT, I mean, or even at the Media Lab, I think that would be extremely uh, inaccurate. But I think that uh, there is something to uh, this mindset of, on the one hand, hacking the world, right? This idea that you can basically solve the problems by resolving them technologically. Uh, once you have that mindset and once you think that technology uh, should be the default solution to any problem, even when other solutions are available, uh, when you start running into hard physical constraints, like those we have as, you know, bodies of flesh, you almost naturally arrive at the idea of transhumanism or singularity or the idea that, you know, if you conceive of consciousness as something that's computable and uh, you completely discount yes. the role of emotions and you cannot account for them because you yourself might not know how to manifest any. So uh, if you have a very poor spiritual and inner life and if you spend all your time in the lab and if all, all, all of your mm. emotional experience revolves just around code and if you uh, have been trained out not just by your career but also by the this you know experiences of consumerism and shopping at the same supermarket every day if you've been trained out almost of having a meaningful inner experience it's quite natural to arrive at the idea that with all of the technological might that you have at your fingertips because you have access to all of the powerful labs and the code that runs inside them, uh, it's quite natural to think that with all that technological might, you would be able to transcend the ultimate limit of life and to basically hack flash and hack consciousness and reimagine them as code. I think that it's the combination of, on the one hand, the spiritual poverty that we're all subjected to under you know, late neoliberalism or late capitalism, on the one hand, and the particular highly technological and even technocratic milieu where these people find themselves. And uh, I think many of them are just bored. I mean, and that they have very um, mm. comfortable existence. They are paid a lot of money. And, uh, you know, some of them might uh, pursue the, lifestyle, the uh, lifestyle of Jeffrey Epstein, uh, but some of them are not cut for that. So they pursue some other crazy projects and uh, transhumanism and singularity, I think, are just some of them. And they find even richer patterns who have similar issues, like this is what happened with Kurzweil, I think, who already being a very rich guy found even more allies inside Google, uh, or Alphabet for that matter. And um, yeah, I think we, we should not underestimate this element of people just being very bored and having a lot of resources at their disposal 
and having a rather eccentric conception of the world, putting all of those factors together, you do get something like the singularity. This brings us to the magical thinkers like Elon Musk in space and Peter Thiel, who want to live forever, and to a network of networks, money, power, science, and sex, that the Jeffrey Epstein case brought halfway to light. One of the central networkers has been the publicist and publisher John Brockman, host of what he calls his Billionaire's Dinners, to which his friend Jeffrey Epstein subscribed. Brockman published popular books by Jared Diamond and Steven Pinker, and he had Epstein's support for his online gabfest called edge.org. Oddly enough, our guest Evgeny Morozov wrote books that got published by Brockman, though Morozov steered very clear of the billionaires and the cult at Edge. I uh, publicly dropped him as my agent after uh, his close ties to Jeffrey Epstein have been revealed. Brockman is a very interesting character in that, you know, he understood the dynamics of the uh, network age, uh, so to say, early on. And literary agency, but also some kind of an intellectual hub or salon, which he runs, would be far more powerful if he manages to build a consistent uh, network uh, of people contributing to them, and then if he also enables some kind of horizontal connections between people inside the network. So Brockman has done his best to essentially uh, enable collaborations across his clients and to also introduce his clients to various powerful figures in modern technology. So he would uh, host regular annual dinners at institutions and conferences like TED, for example, where all of the main tech billionaires would be in attendance. And he would be something of a go-between this uh, new set of technology billionaires who were young and uh, not particularly well-read. At least this is what Brockman used to tell me on the few occasions that I met him in person. He'd always complain that this uh, Silicon Valley founders who are all now stuffed with cash, they were actually not reading anything and that the debates of this decade were Mm. much poorer than the debates of 1980s or 1990s. Of course, for I think a lot of those billionaires having access to Nobel Prize winning scientists, many of whom were also in Brockman's orbit, that was uh, something that they would not normally get because uh, they uh, were very rich, but they were not very smart. And even though scientists, of course, need funding, those connections do not happen naturally. So Brockman uh, had something to offer to everybody. And uh, that part of it was quite obvious to me. So I knew that there was some hmm. transactions happening of you know, social, or cultural, intellectual, or maybe even financial capital. What was not yet obvious to me, even though it should have been in hindsight, given some of the emails that Brockman uh, shared with me, was that there were probably many other exchanges that were not just exchanges of cultural or intellectual capital, but were actually part of uh, Epstein's uh, sex ring. Because Epstein was present at many of those dinners, he was deeply embedded in the foundation that Brockman started to support this intellectual salon, something called Edge.org, or the Edge Foundation, and Epstein basically bankrolled it for many, many years, and very often he was its sole mm. funder. So uh, what became obvious to me uh, in retrospect after the Epstein case and scandal broke was that uh, there were other favors being traded, perhaps, and uh, it was uh, quite clear that many of those scientists or at least some of them, have been on the uh, Jeffrey Epstein's island. 
and uh, who knows uh, what activities they engaged in there. And we know at least of uh, one accusation uh, against uh, Marvin Minsky, who was one of the closest clients of Brockman, and they knew each other intimately. That made me feel rather bad, to say the least, Mm. about my own affiliation with Brockman, so I immediately distanced myself from that crowd. But uh, I think it is important in uh, when we think about how cultural power, intellectual power, even political power operates, we tend to focus on, uh, you know, the figureheads, on people who sell books, on people who are on TV. Uh, we seldom uh, focus on the go-betweens and the networkers and the connectors, right, who like to be invisible and who have a very important role as, you know, brokers of those connections and as some kind of merchants of cultural capital. And I think that as we try to understand how this uh, techno-utopian, but also heavily neoliberal, I would even say, complex of technology companies and some of the scientists supporting them and some of the foundations started by these tech billionaires has come together, I think it will be very important to keep an eye on uh, the role of people like John Brockman, who uh, normally escape our attention for all the reasons I've described before. I do hope that now that more and more people are asking questions about uh, not just big tech, but also about its uh, intellectual impact uh, and its intellectual footprint, so to say, that we will go back and re-examine many of those ideas uh, and we would be much more critical about them. I mean, now it seems to me that even something like TED Talks, which of course has given a platform to many of these people and have made them famous, I think that there is much less demand for it. Again, it's my subjective experience, but I think this attitude, which we used to have maybe 10 years ago, and which has allowed, by the way, institutions like MIT Media Lab to spearhead projects like One Laptop Per Child, right? This idea that we can use technology to solve all of the world's problems, including uh, maybe uh, hunger or uh, lack of education in Africa or poverty. I think there was great enthusiasm for these stories in 2007 and before. And I think that's the reason why so many people uh, have also found related stories of transhumanism and singularity so appealing. Now, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all the discussions we have about the economic power of big tech, I think that there is far less demand for them and there is much more scrutiny. Uh, That does not translate, of course, into any viable alternatives to the power of big tech because the power of big tech is not just rooted in ideas. And I think this is what a lot of people uh, misunderstand. They think that if we just have better ideas and we debunk singularity and if we debunk transhumanism and if we debunk all this myth about big data or artificial intelligence that somehow a better world would come. Uh, Unfortunately, the power of these firms and institutions and super agents, it's uh, grounded in uh, political power and economic power. And, you know, this is also one of the critiques I made of uh, a very famous essay by John Brockman. You know, in 1991, he wrote an essay about the emergence of third culture. 
where he was basically yes. longing for this new generation of intellectuals who were uh, scientifically literate and who could talk about technology without being technophobes. And uh, one line in that essay really stands out if you read it today, uh, because he says that ultimately America will be the ground where such ideas will really take hold and they will then come to conquer the world and they will only reinforce America's might in the world because the ideas are so good. And I think that that's a very idealistic and utopian conception of how these ideas have come to rule the world. And uh, that has to do with amount of violence and power exercised to suppress alternative ideas in many parts of the world, to basically make it almost impossible for local alternatives to Silicon Valley or Hollywood to emerge in the global south. Uh, it has to do with the economic and military might of the United States and the massive budgets that went into Pentagon and DARPA and all those agencies. Uh, all of those are not just derivatives of ideas. They're derivatives of actual physical power, right? And we have to confront that. And we have to understand that after we overthrow the TED Talks and we close down the Media Lab, and we uh, send Brockman to retire, we will still be left with the fact that we have Google running every single device in our household. Uh, we have Apple running the devices that are still not run by Google. We have cars and cities and airplanes and airports and whatnot operated by this industry. And now they seem to be positioning themselves also as essentially some kind of replacements for problem solving that we used to conduct through politics, right? So now they will be running our healthcare system, mm. our education system, uh, and all of those domains where we previously wanted to have at least a modicum of deliberation and uh, transparency and public consultation, right? And I think that uh, that's the real dilemma. It's not just that the ideas of this industry is bad. It's that the ideas of this industry are bad and married to actual physical, economic, and political power. And we have to have an alternative project uh, if we really want those ideas to not to exercise the influence that they do. Because without imagining a world where Google does not dominate industries like healthcare or education, without imagining a world where the only funder capable of funding artificial intelligence is this Japanese entity called SoftBank, which itself draws heavily on money coming from Saudi Arabia, without putting in place alternative funding arrangements at the national and global level, we will be stuck with the same players, only that they will need a different set of ideas to legitimize what they do. So yes, we will have a new director of MIT Media Lab, and yes, he will talk about other things. Maybe they'll talk more about inequality. But the underlying political and economic project will be just like what it is today, only that this rationalization might become less utopian and perhaps we'll use words like justice, equality a little bit more often. But we should not fall for that change in rhetoric. You're famous as a, not just techno-pessimist, but a pessimist in general. What does a pessimist hope for these days? Actually, you know, it's a label that's often uh, put on me. I don't think of myself at all as a pessimist. I am a realist when it comes to how power operates. I'm a skeptic of bullshit 
that comes out of Silicon Valley and Media Lab, uh, that I can definitely grant you. Uh, I'm not at all a skeptic about technology. I do not think that many of the problems that we face today, uh, starting with climate change, uh, you would be able to resolve them without technology of some kind, mm -hmm. especially if you want to have all of the other broader goals, like getting people out of poverty, uh, letting uh, nations in the global south develop economically, uh, reducing inequality within those nations. If you want all of that, technology is our only hope. Coming up, is there a world to come without Google or Apple in it? This is Open Source. In the deep dystopian fog of Yevgeny Morozov's cyber maze, are there alternatives or ways out? And in the 21st century, you have to wonder if China is problem or solution. Does the banner of protest say, make the people great again or just human again? Well, there is clearly uh, an alternative in China, which uh, revolves around having a very strong central power, which is vested in the Communist Party, to essentially use the power of modern technology to uh, continue uh, reinforcing its power, uh, not just at the national level, but also at the global level. So China has understood that ultimately uh, it's not just uh, some kind of a race for who can build better and faster technology, it's a race for power and the power in the international global system. So uh, the Chinese, of course, are doing their act. And uh, I think the tragedy of uh, the last few years is that so many people have come to believe that those are really the only options, that you can either have this American model with corporations running the show and controlling every single facet of infrastructure and data, or that you can only rely on this massive surveillance-prone uh, Chinese model. And I think that that's not at all the case. Uh, I think Europe has try to move in a somewhat different direction with a much stronger protection of privacy, uh, with a much stronger, uh, at least initial effort to get people greater control over their data, not just in terms of giving them rights to sell it, which would be the default American response, but also to let them do something with that data, which does not just involve monetary transactions. If you want to find fellow citizens with whom you can pull the data together so that you can maybe give it back to your local town hall so that your town hall can actually try to design a system that would uh, give you information about traffic in a way that would not depend on Google and Uber, you can do some of the things in Europe already. And cities like Barcelona, and to some extent Amsterdam, have been uh, trying to move in that direction, where citizens are not just conceived of as bags of data, which need to be emptied out so that the data can be handed out to Google, or Apple or whoever, but they're conceived of as active participants in the policy process and in the decision-making process, and they mm. can be essentially contributing, right, where the public sector takes a very different role, where its role is not to accelerate outsourcing of services to the technology industry, but to actually foster new kinds of alternatives, you know, and those alternatives might have to do with, you know, a local uh, equivalent of Uber or Airbnb. Again, there is nothing wrong, I think, in sharing houses, and there is nothing wrong in finding a more 
uh, efficient way of using our transportation resources. But again, Uber does not deliver that efficiency. Its own studies show that it's actually contributing very often to congestion and pollution and whatnot, right? Mm. So I think our initial starting point should be the assumption that uh, what Silicon Valley or China have given us, uh, it's not the only alternatives. And then we have to start thinking politically, what are the conditions that need to be in place in terms of funding, in terms of public effort, in terms of licensing of data that we generate, in terms of, you know, having political parties that would actually understand the value of this. And I know in the American discourse, you know, with two parties essentially controlling the entire debate, it might seem like science fiction what I'm saying. But, you know, in Europe, you have a little bit more variety. For example, you have the Greens, whose position on the digital issues is not at all clear. And that's a party that's rapidly rising in the polls. Uh, You don't have, you know, social Democrats who are not at all clear at all also where they stand on the digital. You have center-right. You have quite a bit of uh, a debate. And I think it's quite healthy, but there have to be pressure on these political parties to start taking positions on this and start treating it as just some kind of a natural progress of technology, which only needs to be watched from the sidelines, you know, and maybe Mm -hmm. endorsing every now and then. Uh, a technology company who would step in and take advantage of it. No, we need to have an active public sector playing an active role in shaping the deployment of technologies in a way that would respect citizens' rights and in a sense that would seek to offer a progressive alternative to what would otherwise be a completely privatized system of uh, what we used to call the welfare state. Right, And this is what bothers me the most, that amidst and in the middle of all this uh, rhetoric of utopian empowerment by means of digital technology, uh, we are essentially mistaken the process of privatization for the process of digitization, right? When Google comes in and starts running your healthcare system, uh, you're not dealing with digitization, you're dealing with privatization, and that's the term you should be using, right? And this is where I still think that uh, the work on conceiving and attacking and analyzing the language that we use in this respect is useful uh, because that's at least the very first step towards understanding that something is missing at a structural level. And unless you understand that you've been living surrounded by this myth uh, of digital utopia, you would not even notice that something is amiss. Sum it up, Evgeny Morozov. What is the damage so far, including the Epstein scandal, to the premises of cyber utopianism to the stars in that world. Who's been hurt here and how deeply? Well, I think we have understood that essentially science and technology and especially digital technology uh, work with many of the same assumptions about power, about hypocrisy, about sex, about money, that any other domain, that they're not free from traditional considerations Uh, that we would apply to the world of finance or the world of the military or the world of war or whatever you might have. Uh, And that, I think, is uh, not in itself such a bad idea. You know, we finally get to see uh, the world of technology with the eyes that are uh, completely unblinkered 
by this idea that uh, technology means progress, that innovation means good, that mm. digitization means equality and more access for everybody. I think it's actually healthy that we understand that most of the things that happen uh, among big, large technology institutes in Cambridge, for example, that is driven by the same considerations as anywhere else. They have to do with egos of the people running them. They have to do with how much cash they manage to raise. They have to do with their considerations of where they would end up after they leave the academic world, right? We kind of apply that reasoning when we think about banking. Nobody thinks that Goldman Sachs is a humanitarian institution anymore. And nobody thinks that an institution inside academia funded by a bank like Goldman Sachs does necessarily good for the world. And we have to apply the same rigor to an institution funded by Google or funded by SoftBank or funded by Reid Hoffman, you know, the founder of LinkedIn. You know, I still, I, I, you know, it's a sad story, but I still laugh that everybody at MIT, it seems, with a completely straight face would accept a disobedience prize founded by uh, and funded by the founder of the most obsequious and kind of power grabbing and, uh, you know, kind of slimy side that exists, which is LinkedIn. You know, that the founder of LinkedIn <laughs> would be now our main disobedience guy and everybody would treat it completely normally as if it's not the most hilarious thing in the world. To me, it's an indication of just how badly our radar uh, works, you know, intellectual and moral one. And I think we have to uh, basically start applying the same criteria we apply to everything else and understand that in this case, unfortunately, sex, money and power as the main drivers of behavior in this milieu are still a much better explanation and offer a much better explanation than, you know, this noble striving towards truth or discovery, which is how we traditionally conceive of science and technology. And uh, unfortunately, it's a very banal interpretation of this, but I think we are so badly mistaken about what goes on in these institutions, what drives them, uh, how the relationship with their funders shapes their work, uh, how the relationship with you know, the anonymous funders shapes their work, that we need a reality check. And I think this Epstein case is a very good reality check. And I, you know, some people will yes. inevitably fall and will inevitably get damaged, but it's long, long overdue. And I think the sooner we start waking up to how reality actually works, uh, the sooner we'll be able to do something about it. Given the dense in this picture of utopia. Can you imagine a revolutionary response? I mean, people rising, a populist movement to say no. Well, there are such populist movements rising, but again, they are rising mostly to attack the concentration of power in this industry or the market concentration. They have a very rudimentary analysis of how our entire thought about technology and progress and innovation are deeply uh, embedded in a much broader set of values, which I would say are extremely neoliberal values. They are values that treat everybody as uh, a consumer and as a market participant, and they treat every problem as solvable, essentially, through market intervention. Right? And I think that unless we manage to properly situate technology 
as an extension of the neoliberal project. And we also managed to situate the recent history of technology. So, you know, we look at the rise of Uber and Airbnb, for example, not as some kind of uh, offsprings and developments and breakthroughs and innovation, but rather the almost natural consequences of the financial crisis, which left a lot of people uh, with the need to pay their bills. So they started putting their houses on the market to, you know, welcome tourists into them, or they started uh, using the only asset that they had, which was their car, to engage in uh, precarious labor in the so-called gig economy. Unless we manage to offer these alternative framings, I think we will keep attacking these firms using the rhetoric from the 1920s and the 1930s, conceiving of them as monopolies and conceiving of them as this large concentrations of power. And all of that, of course, is true. But my fear is that it doesn't get us anywhere towards solving uh, the problem. Because if you have 20 Ubers competing with each other, but they all compete each other under the rules imposed by the broader neoliberal capitalist logic, where work is precarious, nobody has a stable job, you cannot take a holiday, everything you do is controlled. What does it really matter whether it's just one Uber or 20 doing all those things, right? So we have to have the right reasons for hating these companies. And I think that the reasons that we have come up with so far, which, again, are grounded in a very old and to some extent, even conservative conception of the world, uh, they need to be refined, right? And we need, and but they mm. can only be refined against some kind of a positive view of an alternative future, right? Where technology plays an important role, where we do not stay away from sensors and we uh, aggregate and collect some data, but we use it for very different purposes, and it's embedded in a very different political project, right? Where we do not use data to uh, exploit workers or to squeeze as much money as we can from consumers. But we use it in order to, for example, remove inefficiencies in product distribution, right? So mm. that we can actually not produce so much waste, right? And we can perhaps use that data to match people's actual needs and demands with the number of products that's being produced, right? And we would not necessarily even have a market system doing that, right? So there are all sorts of ways in which our imagination can be unlocked in order to uh, essentially come up with a very different set of technological infrastructures. But along with those infrastructures, we need a political project and an economic project that can inform how these technologies will be deployed, but they will also strengthen our critique of the existing ones. Because we will not get very far if our only critique of these firms is that they are too big and they're not paying taxes. Yeah. I'm imagining a campaign to restore imagination, emotion, human mystery to their old place in our hierarchies. What would the banner say? Make people great again, maybe. I think it's it's a good place to start. Uh, make people great again, I think is good. But I think you know we need <laughs> we need something catchy. But uh, it it has to be tied to uh, essentially a vision that puts people first, right? And it treats citizens as grown ups, as people who can actually make decisions. Uh, despite everything that behavioral economics tells us about how irrational we are and how we cannot be trusted, we have to start on the assumption that 
people are capable of solving their problems if given enough information and enough resources. And that, to some extent, was already evident even to people like Stuart Brand and Negro Ponte in late 1960s, early 1970s, right? But where they, I think, failed or they just didn't want to think about it was how the broader structural changes in capitalism, how they would severely limit this emancipatory power of information and technology, right? That ultimately, Mm. once the companies would enter into this space, And once they start uh, imagining business models that would essentially serve all the other needs that we have, they would turn us away from this liberatory path where information truly empowers. So I think our slogans, of course, should be along the lines of, let's put people first, but we have to put them first and we have to put some, so to say, uh, you know, protective walls around the decision-making power, right? Because otherwise, that power will closely come to resemble just a set of choices in the marketplace. And that's clearly not what we want. We don't want them to be choosing between different solutions to their problems to be offered by, you know, a set of competing startups. We want them to be actually actively participating in the political life. Uh, otherwise, if we completely give up on that idea of political participation, we might as well just delegate our whole life to Google and Apple. And then the question becomes, why do we need governments? Why do we need elections? If Google and Facebook and Microsoft can just solve all of our problems from healthcare to education, and we do not believe in citizens as active actors and active shapers of their own lives, then the only coherent solution is just to say, okay, Silicon Valley apps, solve it for me, right? So we have to be quite coherent in what we want, and we have to be quite coherent in terms of what our ultimate conception of our own citizens is. And if that conception does not grant them any autonomy or agency or even any ability to make grown-up decisions, then Silicon Valley will always win, regardless what slogans they use and regardless what slogans we use. Evgeny Moritzov, you know much too much, but you've given us a great blast of tough lessons, and we're taking them in. Thank you so much for this conversation. No, sure. Thank you so much for having me. I don't get to talk to a lot of people in rural Calabria, so it's good. I can do it on the radio. Evgeny Morozov is a writer and essayist. His latest project is Syllabus, a fully customized personal online digest. He calls it the anti-Google for eclectic intellectuals. The vital information one needs to interpret and change the world is already here, Morozov says. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Check it out at the-syllabus.com. Open Source is a proud affiliate of Hub & Spoke, a collective of strong-minded, idea-driven podcasts. Here's another one to check out. The Constant, a history of getting ideas wrong about the various misadventures and misapprehensions of human history. Their latest episode is Madagascar, looking at the Nazi plan to use that island for its genocidal designs. Listen in at constantpodcast.com and check out all the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. And while you're up, check out all the open source shows at radioopensource.org. Sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to the first ever and longest running podcast. And if you like what you hear, think of leaving something in the tip jar for the hardest working team in radio. Our show is produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our humanista. 
I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.